if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at them. So why don't you go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I want to uh, thank Craig for filling in for me last week. He did a great job. And, um, you know, we truly are blessed to, to have such a, a, a deep bench of, of capable men able to fill the pulpit. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that. And Craig got us started in Nehemiah chapter 4 last week, but this morning we're going to go back and have one final look at chapter 3. If you were with us two weeks ago, you know that we started looking at those ten gates mentioned in, in that chapter around the wall of, of Jerusalem. And, and we, we started looking at how those gates paint a picture of our individual Christian lives and, and our church. And the point of the gates and the theme that we get from them, I, I gave this to you last time, but I'll, I'll give it to you again, is that as believers in Jesus Christ, there are thir- certain things we need in our life and certain things we need out of our life. And that's what these gates represent for us. And they all have significance. And they have not only significance in the names, the, how they're named and, and what those names mean, they also have significance in their order, and, and we, we saw that some last time. We'll really see that uh, more today, but they do paint beautiful pictures for us, and we only got through the first five last time, so this morning we're going to go back, we're going to look at the final five gates and try to complete the painting that shows us the necessary components of a life that is glorifying to the Lord. And, and just by way of, of quick reminder, the first five gates that we looked at were the sheep gate. The fish gate, the old gate, the valley gate, and the dung gate. And I know Craig had jokes about the dung gate, um, but I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to leave those with him. Uh, we're just going to keep on moving. Uh, but these gates do teach us about the comings and goings. We talked about that and how you see that even with the temple, the comings and the goings of our life. And it all starts at the sheep gate. And we looked at how the sheep gate speaks of the cross, as Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed. For you and me, and that is a gate that we all must go through in order to be saved. And then in return, we're called to sacrifice our life for him. We're to be that living sacrifice that Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. And then after, after we go through that gate and we're saved, and we saw in the fish gate our, our holy purpose to be fishers of men, to go back out and to bring people through that sheep gate that we went through. And after we're saved, we're to shine the light of the glorious gospel to others. And then we saw the old gate and how the old gate speaks to discipleship and following those old paths that most people think really talk about tradition and nostalgia, but but they don't. Those old paths speak to that which is biblical. And we saw that in this area of the wall and on this gate is where children helped. And it all pictures discipleship and learning the basics of the faith and raising up our physical and spiritual children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then we moved to the valley gate and saw that that valley gate open to, to the lowest valley, the low place there in Jerusalem. And it represents humility and our willingness to occupy a lowly place in the Lord's service through submission to him. And, and through that, it, it gets to our mission because it, is our mission about submission to him and to his calling and to his work, or, or have we declared that the mission of our life is about us and about what we want? And then lastly, the Dungate. And the Dungate pictures how we deal with sin, the junk in our life, that we've got to take out the trash, 
so to speak, and take responsibility for keeping ourselves clean. Because if we don't, God can't get glory out of our lives. And so that was last time, but we've got five more gates to discuss this morning. But before we get into them, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll see what he has for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you so much for the, the testimony of the Bradleys that we heard this morning. And, and Lord, we're, we are so thankful for their partnership with us and, and our partnership with them and, and, and Lord, their submission uh, to give their life to you uh, in, in that field. And so, Lord, we pray that, that they're encouraged this morning as, as they're able to be a part of our body and, and worship with us today. Lord, we pray that you teach us your word this morning. Pray that your Holy Spirit does that work that only he can do to teach us your word. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it's glorifying and honoring to you, and I pray that you use it in our life to change us and mold us into the people that we need to be for you. Lord, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to move quickly through these, and I'm just going to kind of get to the point on all of them um, so we can see them all. But the next gate we see in Nehemiah chapter 3, we find in verse 15. And this is the fountain gate. So look with me, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 15 says, The gate of the fountain prepared Shalom, the son of Kaze, the ruler of Mizpah. He built it and covered it and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof, and the wall of the pool of Silo by the king's garden and under the stairs that go down from the city of David. So the sixth gate that we get to is the fountain gate. And the fountain gate, like I said, I'm just going to jump right in and we're going to get right to the point of all this, speaks of the Spirit of God and more specifically for us being filled with the Spirit. And we get that primarily from two passages that we find in the Gospel of John. The first is John chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. And the context of that section of, of John chapter 4 is Jesus dealing with the woman at the well. Many of us are very familiar with this. And Jesus sees this woman, he asks her to, to draw some water for him, and, and she's a little confused. She knew he was a Jew, she's a Samaritan, and she know, knew that, that, that Jews didn't have any dealings with Samaritans. So she even said in verse 9, for the Jews have no dealings. She said that very thing with the Samaritans. And Jesus' answer to her was, if you really knew who you were talking to, you would have actually asked me for water. Because I have living water, and he describes this in John chapter 13, or John chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. It says, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, the water from the well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him, shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, shall be in him, listen to this, a well of water springing up, into everlasting life. And the well of water springing up is a fountain. In fact, the word well in verse 14 can also be translated as fountain, and it is translated that way eight other times in your Bible. One of them is Revelation 21, verse 6. that says, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And this is the exact same living water that Jesus told the woman at the well about in John chapter 4. And listen, I, I, I understand very clearly where we're at in Revelation 21, and it's after the millennium, but that's an invitation. And that invitation applies in this age, in this dispensation of the church. 
And I think God stuck it here in Revelation 21 because after this, he's getting ready to talk about New Jerusalem. And New Jerusalem is the inheritance for church-age saints. And he's telling everyone, he's telling every one of us who reads it today, you don't want to miss out on this. New Jerusalem is going to be amazing. So you don't want to mess it up and miss out on it. Accept my invitation today. And it was the same message to the woman at the well. And, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, this is an invitation. This is about living water. It sounds like you're talking about salvation. And wasn't salvation the, the sheep gate? And you just said this relates to the Spirit of God. Well, that gets to our second passage in the Gospel of John. And that's where this comes in. It's John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. That says, in the last day... The great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. Here's the same invitation. Let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. All right? This is, a, this is the same thing he's talking about to the woman at the well, John 4. But then he defines it, or, or it, the, John defines it for us in verse 39 in this parentheses, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, it is the Spirit of God in a person that is actually confirmation of their salvation. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ... He is none of his. And Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this is what Paul was talking about when he was describing the body of Christ and even how we get into the body of Christ from a spiritual perspective in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. He says, For one spirit... We're all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been, made, have been all made to drink into one spirit. And that's, again, the, the drinking of that living water that he was talking about in John chapter 4 and John chapter 7. And in this verse, Paul talks about a baptism and a drinking related to the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus also tried to explain it further to his disciples when he was teaching them about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. And he told them when he was gone that the Comforter would come, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. And he said this in John 14, 20. And at that day you shall know that I, that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Ye in me, and I in you. And that's what's fulfilled in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, with regard to the Holy Spirit. When the, when the Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ, He puts us into Christ. Ye and me. He joins our life to His. He becomes our source of existence and strength. We are part of Him. We are in Him. Then when we, when we are indwelt by the Spirit... We have been made to drink into one spirit, and you find the fulfillment of the Lord's words, I and you. That's the power by which we are to live. 
So we are in him, and he are, uh, uh, is in us. We're baptized into him. We drink him into us. And this dual ministry of the Holy Spirit, baptizing us into the body and filling us with the Spirit so that we are both in Christ and he is in us. This is amazing, man. This, this book is amazing. But you also need to note that the filling of the Spirit, it's also a command. We see that in Ephesians 5.18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That is a command that we've been given. And for us, we know that that is walking in the Spirit. That is living our life through His leading. We've talked about this over and over these past number of weeks. And this is everything that the fountain gate represents for us, the role that the Spirit of God plays in our life, that well of water springing up within us, that we're to be filled with Him and, and walk in Him. And we've got to keep moving, so we don't have time to dive into this too deep, but, but there's something else I want you to see with respect to the fountain gate. If you look back at Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 15, you see it sh that Shallon, the, the guy that is building this gate, it says he covered it. All right? And this is the only gate that gets this distinction. None others are covered. Right? We read about doors and bars and locks, and you see that on others. But this one is a little bit different. It is the only one that is covered. And here's why, or at least why I believe why. In the Old Testament... There was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There was no drinking. That is a New Testament fulfillment of, of, of in, in, fulfilled in the New Testament. So there was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He would come and go. The Bible describes it as being endued with power, or that he would come upon some, someone. And being endued or, or coming upon, that it literally means to be clothed, or covered. So the Holy Spirit was still and is still a covering. Now, the covering in the New Testament is a sealing. That's what we read in Ephesians 1.13. And he didn't seal in the Old Testament. But in both Testaments, a covering is a work of the Holy Spirit. So it's no coincidence that this is the only gate that was covered. It's also no coincidence that God moves right from the fountain gate into number seven, the water gate. We find that down in verse 26. Nehemiah 3.26 says, Moreover, the Nethanims dwelt in Ophel, under the place over against the water gate, toward the east, and the tower that lieth out. Now, water, many of you know this, water in the Bible is associated with the word of God. And that's exactly what this gate is related to. And this is one of the spots where you can really begin to see, and, and we'll see it throughout the rest of our time this morning, but the order of the, the, the significance of the order of these gates, right? We just talked about the living water and drinking of the Holy Spirit. And when it comes with our service to the Lord, you see, you cannot separate the Spirit of God from the Word of God, right? We just talked about the command of being filled with the Spirit, right? Ephesians 5.18, you remember that? We have this command 
to be filled with the Spirit. Well, there's a, com- a companion verse in Colossians, and it's Colossians 3.16, and it gives us more definition on how we are filled with the Spirit. And it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making mel- singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And if we would have finished out Ephesians chapter 5, we would have seen how these verses connect. And, and this verse in Colossians gives us a definition to being filled with the Spirit. It's letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. You see, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, they go hand in hand. Now, if you remember back to last time, we talked about the, the dung gate. I told you that our body is designed by God in, in such a way that it is self-cleaning. And I made the comparison between our physical life and our spiritual life. You know, God has done the same thing for us spiritually. We are commanded to clean out the junk in our lives. We talked about that. That's the dung gate. And he's given us a way to do it. And that's through the water gate. It comes through the cleansing, the washing of God's word. Ephesians 5.26 says that he might sanctify and cleanse it. He's talking about the body of Christ here, given that, that comparison to marriage. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And that is how you cleanse yourself as you spend time and meditate on God's word and you look at what he's teaching you and you apply it to your life. It renews your mind and it cleanses you for service to him, right? We looked at 2 Corinthians 7, 1 last time, but look at it again. Having therefore these promises, we know the, the promises of God and his word. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And I've used this example before, but, but it fits perfectly here, right? When, you know, I, I talk about if you've been outside and you've been, you know, working in the garden, let's say, for example, you've been outside all day or you've been working on your car, you're dirty, you get dirty, and you come in and you wash your hands and you go to the bathroom and you apply the soap and you, let, you, you, you know, rub your hands with the soap and the water and you deliberately choose to use the soap and the water to clean yourself. And you, and you get done and you look and, man, this is, soap is a good thing. Water is a good thing. I can now go eat or whatever. And, I, and you, you, know, you can say, I, I'm clean. I've cleansed myself. Well, it actually, you know, other than the, the rubbing, you know, it wasn't really you that did the cleaning. It was the water and the soap. All you did was apply what was available to your life. Well, that's how God's word works as well. It's not us that does the cleaning. We have the command to cleanse ourselves, but we have to use what God gives us. And that's his word. That's the spirit of God. God's word is the water we need to cleanse ourselves and keep our mind focused where it needs to be. It's how we renew our minds. And, and most of us know this, but it's so important to be reminded of it. There are a couple other interesting things about the Watergate that I want to point out that, that I think lend further credence to being connected to the word of God. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I need to prove any further water and, and the word are associated with each other throughout the Bible, but there's some interesting things in here. This is where we find, at the Watergate, is where we find Ezra preaching God's word to Israel after the completion of the wall. It's in Nehemiah chapter 8. 
And that's gonna, I can't wait to get there. That's, that's going to be a, a fun chapter to go through. But in Nehemiah chapter 8, look at what he records in verses 1 through 3. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was where? Before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate. He read from God's word before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive under the book of the law. You see, the water gate is where Ezra brought God's word to the people. And there's a connection. Again, there's no coincidence in this stuff. And secondly, I don't know if you noticed it, but when we read Nehemiah 3.26, that talks about the water gate, it was described in a different way than every other gate that we see. Because every other gate except the water gate was said to have been built or repaired, but not the water gate. Look at verse 26 again. Moreover, the Nethanims dwelt no fell under the place over against the water gate towards the east and the tower that lieth out. It doesn't talk about it being built. It doesn't talk about it being repaired. The water gate just is. It doesn't need to be built and it doesn't need to be repaired. And that is because God's word is eternal and God's word is perfect. So God's word is eternal. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, Thy word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And let me tell you, his word is also perfect. And people have tried to change it and correct it and fix it and make it better. They don't have to do that. It's perfect. Psalm 12, verses 6 through 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. Silver tried in a furnace of fire, purified seven times. I shall keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And let me just throw this out to you when we get to the water gate and its connection to God's word. If you had to guess what number this gate is listed, what number do you think it would be? It's the seventh gate listed. And if you're not aware, seven in the Bible is the number of perfection. And listen, there is so much more in here regarding the towers around this gate. And there were, there were watchtowers. And this gate, the water gate, could, as most of them could really, could be a sermon all on its own. But, but really, here's all I want to say. And I just want to make it practical. Because while we're going through the details of these gates and making the connections to our life, I don't want you to lose sight of the picture they are painting Again, they are showing us the things that we need in and out of our lives in order to glorify God. And the Word of God is absolutely something you need in your life if your goal is to glorify Him at all. A daily relationship with Him through His Word is essential. And we talk about it all the time, but the fact is we don't talk about it enough because that's not possible. It's not possible to overemphasize 
God's word and the importance it, and the place it needs to hold in our life. But because, listen, after the sheep gate, once you get into your Christian walk, that sheep gate is, is, the, is the entrance, and then you have these nine gates, your Christian walk. I, I don't know that, I mean, they all are important. They all, obviously, but man, if you miss this one, you're missing a big one. Then the next gate we see, after the water gate, is the horse gate. And we find the horse gate in verse 28. It says, from above, the horse gate repaired the priest, everyone over against his house. And the horse gate speaks of spiritual warfare. Because the horse in the Bible is a symbol of war and battle. And again, we're... We're moving through this very quickly, but I, I want you to see some, just some of the key passages. And I want you to see how God describes the horse uh, in Job 39, starting at verse 19. This is actually God speaking, he's, and he's speaking to Job. He says, Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. He paweth in the valley and rejoiceth in his strength, and he goeth on to meet the armed men. He mocketh that fear and is not affrighted, neither turneth he back from the sword. The quiver rattleth against him. Again, this is all in, in describing a horse. The quiver rattleth against him and glittereth spear and shield. He swalloweth the ground with fierceness and rage. Neither believeth he that it is the sound of the trumpet. He saith among the trumpets, Ha ha, and he smelleth the battle afar off. The thunder of the captains and the shouting. Now this passage is a very, very interesting one that has all sorts of prophetic implication. And, and, and in, a, in a summary, it's, prophet, it's prophetically pointing to the battle of Armageddon. Where a horse and his rider will be thrown into the sea. That's described in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 1. That is also a prophetic picture of the battle of Armageddon. But the point here is that God paints the horse as an animal of war. You see it again in Jeremiah 8, verse 6. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man represented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course as the horse rusheth into the battle. Now we also know that in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back at the second coming for that famous battle of Armageddon, he's going to be riding a white horse. And, and guess what? We will too. In verses 11 through 14 of that chapter, we read, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness, righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed, upon, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And, and now this, I, I just want to say, is not to be confused with the white horse you find in Revelation chapter 6. You see, behind that horse and that rider is death and famine and hell and judgment. Now, this is where you have to be careful with things because nearly every commentary you read will connect the rider of that horse in Revelation chapter 6 
to the same rider in, Re- in the white horse in Revelation chapter 19. That's not right. In Revelation chapter 6, you need to connect that rider back to Exodus chapter 15 verse 1 and back to Job 39. That is our enemy. Revelation 19 is very clearly, it's the word of God. It's Jesus Christ. And we get to follow him and that's going to be pretty awesome. But, but listen, whether the horse is helping the good guys or the bad, it's still a picture of war. And it's a picture of battle. And just as an as, just as an interesting side note, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem to declare himself king, as, you know, as part of that triumphal entry, you know, we would call it, uh, that week before he was crucified, he didn't enter Jerusalem on a horse. He entered on an ass, a donkey colt, because his first coming wasn't about war. But Revelation 19, his second coming, that is. And you have to know as this relates to us, that every time you walk out of the horse gate and into the world, you need to be prepared for the battle. And again, note the significance of the order. Because how do you prepare yourself for the battle? How do you prepare for spiritual warfare? You do it as you spend time in God's word through that water gate. As, the, as, as God's word comes in to you. Now you're, you're now then ready and prepared to walk out the horse gate into what this world is going to throw up against you. And you're prepared for the battle. Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. How do you put on God's armor? You do it through his word and spending time in his word. And there are so many verses in Scripture, where, where we as Christians are compared to soldiers at war. The great example is 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul told Timothy, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. In Philemon 1 2, it says, Unto our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Fellow soldier, we're, we're making that comparison. And when it comes to fighting this war for the Lord, it's something to which Paul says we've been called. It's not presented as an option. 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. And so it's a fight. It's, it's a battle. And I don't think anyone who's been through it will disagree with that. But it's also interesting to see where this battle begins. Because the horse gate was repaired by the priest, which has a spiritual connection to us. And in Nehemiah 3.28, where we see it, it says, everyone over against his house. So you have to understand that this battle begins in your home. And Satan is, a fight, is fighting against your home and against your family and your marriage And he knows where to attack. So if you personally are not prepared, you might not be the only one in trouble. Your entire house may be in trouble too. So let's get this one right. Let's prepare ourselves. Let's use that water gate to prepare ourselves for the battle. And then next, in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 29, we see the east gate. 
It says, after them repaired Zadok, the son of Emmer, over against his house. This is still in reference to the horse gate. We move right into verse 29. It says, after him repaired also Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate. Now, the east gate points to Christ's return. All right? It points to Christ's return. And certainly, undoubtedly, the doctrinal picture here is the second coming of Christ. Is the rising of the sun. Obviously rises in the east. It's a hope that comes with that new day. Malachi 4.2 says, but unto, but unto you that fear my name shall the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness arise with healing in his wings and ye shall go forth and grow up as the calves of the stall. Look at what Matthew says in, in his gospel in Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's in reference to the second coming of Christ. And again, we see the progression in, in relation of these gates. We just read Revelation 19 for the horse gate. Well, Revelation 19 is in context dealing with the second coming of Christ. He is going to return physically to this earth. And we will come back with him. We saw that as well. And understanding the second coming of Christ is key for any Christian. It is the theme of our Bible. Because he comes to set up his kingdom for that thousand year millennial day. Everything hinges around this doctrine. So one thing that we all should be able to agree upon is that the Lord is coming again. He's coming again one day. But let me try to tie this for us specifically. Because again, these, these, these gates paint a picture for us in our Christian life and our, 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 our Christian walk. And the Lord's return for us, specifically the bride of Christ, isn't at the second coming. Christ comes back for us at the rapture. Now, those are two separate events. You have to understand that. Those are two separate events separated by a seven-year tribulation. So in this picture of Christ's return, the, the doctrinal understanding, I, I believe, is undoubtedly the second coming. But this is pointing us to the rapture, to Christ's return, because that's when he's coming to get us. And, and again, you'll see next the progression and how that fits and an appreciation and a knowledge of Christ coming back to get us is something that we need in our life. In fact, the Bible says it's something so important that we receive a crown for it. 2 Timothy 4, 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready when he appears in the sky? Do you live your life with an understanding that he is coming back for you one day? You need that in your life because that is a great motivator for service. You know, my kids, like, you know, Jennifer and I will leave and we'll tell them, we'll give them a list of things. Okay, you need to do this and this and this and this before we get done, before we get back. Well, if they know we're going to be gone for a while, they'll do it till the very end. They just push it off as, as far as they can. But if they know that I'm going to be home in a few minutes, it helps motivate them to get to work. 
And we absolutely, you, listen, this is all of us. We need to be motivated to the work. Because when he comes back for us, an inspection of our life is on the docket. And that brings us to the last gate mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3. And that's the Mifkad gate, verse 31. And after him repaired Malchiah, the goldsmith's son, against the place of the Nethanims and of the merchants, over against the gate Mifkad, and to the going up of the corner. All right, so we've made sort of a counterclockwise loop around the gate, and we're back up in, in the, the far sort of northeast, northeastern corner. And not surprisingly, the word Mifkad means inspection. Historically, it's where the soldiers were inspected for their dress before they were to go out to battle. And for us, this is an inspection of our life and our service to the Lord before we return with him at the second coming for that battle. So this gate points to the judgment seat of Christ. Because after the rapture of the church is the judgment seat. Again, see the progression, the order, how beautiful God paints his word for us into this mural of our life. And it, it kind of comes to this culmination of the judgment seat of Christ. Because listen, after that, everything is set. You are what you are into the millennium. You have the you have the crowns you have the rewards that you have or you don't there's nothing else you can do the judgment seat's sort of the end now we'll be alive for eternally eternally but it's the end of the the final kind of setting of, of, of what we get and listen all of our work on the wall comes to a head that day Everything we're talking about in this series, while it will absolutely benefit you in, in this life, it's all revealed that day. When we are judged for our works, for what we did on this earth in submission and service to Him, for what we built, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Verses 10 through 15, it says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth there, thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You see, if we do the work of building, this is where we will see that it was certainly worth it all. Now, it's worth it all even without the rewards because like Shannon told us, he is worthy. He is worthy of it. He's worthy of it no matter what. But in his loving kindness, he has seen fit to reward our service to him. 
We read 2 Timothy 4.8 a minute ago. We talked about the crown that we can receive for those that love is appearing. And the judgment seat is where you'll get that crown or not, depending on how you live this life. The Bible talks about five crowns that we can receive. They are the honor of service, a life lived for the king. And I want you to think about it. Think about seeing Jesus on his throne and bowing at his feet and receiving a reward. Hearing the inspection as our life is judged and inspected before him. And receiving a reward from the one righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. As he bestows crowns for a life lived in service to him. This coming from the one who willingly walked through that sheep gate to lay his life down for you and me. And he's rewarding us. How humbling. How incredible is that? But listen, on the flip side, can you imagine the anguish of some Christians when others get crowns and they get none? When they suffer loss? What shame there will be in that day. Because the fact is, you will receive your rewards only if you have met the requirements for the rewards. And for those that don't meet the requirements, they just won't have anything. And it'll be apparent to all, this is an inspection. This is where, listen, the inspection gate, the soldiers lined up. And they were all inspected. One right after another. And at the judgment seat, I don't know how it works. I ain't smart enough to figure that out. But, but I suspect we're all going to know. I suspect we're all going to know. I suspect we're all going to be inspected. Kind of lined up one right after another. So let's not mess it up. Especially as we're coming to an end, at the end, 2 John verse, chapter 1, verse 8 says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. He said, we need this gate. We need to live our life in light of the judgment seat. It's important. It's the last step for us. And so I hope you see it. I hope you see the importance and I hope you see the progression of these 10 gates, like I told you, they paint a mural. And it is a mural of our Christian life. And it's interesting because the very last verse of Nehemiah chapter 3 brings us all the way back around to the sheep gate. Nehemiah 3.32. And between the going up of the corner under the sheep gate, repaired the goldsmiths and the merchants. So things come full circle. Because after the, at the inspection, man... Listen, we're standing before him. Our Christian life begins and it ends all in Jesus. Could never get, he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And should never get past Calvary. But in between that, those next nine gates are the stages and the progression of our spiritual life. And I know I'm always breaking things up into like inward, outward, and upward. But it's because God is a God of order and he puts patterns in his Bible everywhere. You can see that here. So the Christian life starts with the, the sheep gate. But the next three, 
They're the outward aspects of our Christian life. It's evangelism, discipleship, and outward display of humility and submission to him, as, as we can see. Right? It's the fish gate, the old gate, and the valley gate. These are the outward display that we're actually ch- children of God. We evangelize, we disciple, and, and we're submitted. Our, our life shows that we're submitted. Then the middle three are inward. The dung gate, the fountain gate, and the water gate. This is dealing with sin through walking in the Spirit, loving God's Word. Those are all internal. Listen, people can fake all of them. You can fake that your life is clean when it's not. You can fake that you're walking in the Spirit when you're not. You can fake that you love God's Word when you don't. But God knows. Those are all internal aspects. They're inter- and the last three are all upward. They're all looking to him. It's the horse gate, the east gate, and the Mifkad gate. They're all spiritual because our battle is not of this earth. It's not carnal. It's physical. It's, putting, or it's not physical. It's, it's spiritual. It's putting on the armor to his glory and then focusing on his return, and being a part of that second coming, and, and, then, and, 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 and living our life in light of the judgment seat. And all of them provide the perfect balance to our Christian life. We need all of them. Build those gates in your life and God will get glory from you.